This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Hello and welcome to American Enough. In a moment, Vikram Iyer will be joined by Gautam Rakhavan, former LGBT advisor to President Barack Obama and Pentagon White House liaison who helped oversee the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and worked on implementing the rule enabling transgender service members to openly serve our country. He joins American Enough today to discuss the thinking behind President Trump's trans ban and shares his views on what it means to be American enough to serve God and country. Here's Vicar Meyer. So with us today is Gautam Raghavan, who, and Gautam, you've held very uh, many hats uh, over the years, um, but in particular, uh, and, and in focus to this conversation, um, tell us a little bit about your background um, and, and your role working on uh, military affairs issues in general and specifically about uh, those contributions in terms of broader inclusivity in terms of the makeup of the army. The yeah, officers. absolutely. So, um, so, you know, in 2000, from 2009 to 2011, I worked at the Pentagon uh, in a couple of different roles, primarily in an office called the White House Liaison Office there. Uh, but most relevant to, I think, the conversation we're having today is in 2010, I worked on the uh, Pentagon working group that was focused on the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, and then subsequent to that experience from 2011 to 2014, I worked at the White House as President Obama's liaison to the LGBT community, where one of the issues that we looked at was, you know, sort of following the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was what was what sort of the best way and how could we open up um, service in the military to transgender individuals, um, you know, many of whom have been serving and have served for, for decades, quite frankly, um, but weren't able to be uh, open and honest about who they are um, or access the kind of health care or benefits that they needed. So that was a process that I, I got to be at the start of. Um, and then after leaving, continued to be involved from the outside until we got the change in policy in 2016. So, so that's a tremendous amount of work and a, a tremendous amount of progress. But maybe just in terms of a little bit of historical perspective, um, before you mentioned kind of marching towards this ethos of being more open and honest with one another and in terms of our service members, um, walk us back a little bit in terms of what the landscape looked like before you, uh, President Obama and the administration, started tackling these issues, before Don't Ask, Don't Tell um, was officially repealed and before the transgender uh, service rule was put into place, what was the state of play like for our uniform services? Was it simply a focus on qualifications? Um, did folks understand that the tapestry of service members was quite varied, but no one wanted to address it or talk about it? Um, what was the makeup like before these uh, steps of progress were enacted? Sure. So, you know, the history of the, of the U.S. military, which is something that, that folks often forget, has actually always been one about expanding opportunity to military service, right? So, in fact, yesterday was the, I believe, the 69th anniversary of President Truman's executive order that uh, desegregated the military. So in a, in a weird way, even though sometimes people think about the military as a very sort of rigid, conservative institution, um, in, in many ways, it's actually led the way on social change, uh, desegregation being, I think, the best example. Uh, that said, in 2009, you know, when President Obama took office, um, 
uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was in effect and had been in effect at that point for about 16 years. Um, you know, the, the background on Don't Ask, Don't Tell was it was a law that was signed by President Clinton in 93, I believe, if I get my dates correct, um, that essentially said that gay, lesbian, and bisexual service members could serve uh, but they couldn't they couldn't be out about who they are and no one could ask them about their sexual orientation. So it essentially created a, a situation in which you had, you know, LG and B service members who were serving in the closet, um, had to hide their identities, had to many times uh, hide who their partners or spouses were. Um, and it was really an untenable situation that that forced people to live a lie every single day, um, even people who are serving our country. So President Obama had had pledged to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell on the campaign trail. In fact, I think most Democrats had at that point. Um, and at 2010 is when he announced before uh, Congress, the State of the Union, that he would work with Congress to get it done that year. Um, the In terms of trans gender troops, um, it's a completely different set of, of rules and regulations that we're looking at here. Um, the, I, the issue of sort of gender identity or trans people was not addressed by Don't Ask, Don't Tell directly. Uh, instead, there have been regulations on the books for, gosh, I think 20 or 30 years, they're pretty antiquated, that lump um, trans people into the same category as like pedophiles and alcoholics basically saying that, you know, gender identity disorder, or actually as it's, as it's called in the regulations, transsexualism is a mental disorder. It's something that is uh, in and of itself prohibitive to military service. And so for that reason, um, transgender people couldn't, certainly couldn't come out, but, but shouldn't be able, even be able to serve um, in silence, right? So that was the, wow. you know, the, essentially the, the state of play um, while we were looking at Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And even though uh, when we repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it didn't directly impact trans service members, it obviously begged the question, well, how are we going to do that next, right? Okay. What, what's the, the process to get that done? Um, and that's, that's where we were, certainly when I was at the White House. And, and so when you mentioned that this is how um, service would be, or sorry, this is how the background or the capability of the individuals, the LGB individuals were characterized, um, or even broadly, um, the trans community was characterized, how much of this was sort of stigmatized as this is a thing about that, that makes this human or individual different versus what we heard yesterday from the um, Trump administration, which made arguments about the costs that it takes to enlist a service member who happens to be from a trans background? Was it always just about they are distinct, they are different, and sort of this otherization of the LGB and then subsequently the T community? Or was it talking specifically about, were, were reports internal or external talking about the cost and upkeep of investing in these service members? Yeah, it's uh, it's all about stigma, right? Like, let's be clear. This is about people who don't like LGBT people, right? It's 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 pretty clear from the rhetoric, from the history of the discussion, the politics of this issue. Um, you know, these sort of like false arguments about cost and you know regulations and burdensome um, impact on the military. It's all uh, quite frankly a bunch of BS that's been debunked many many times over the years. Um, it really is about stigma. And in fact, um, if you look at the conversations around Don't Ask, Don't Tell, you know, the, the main arguments that opponents to repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell had were, oh, you know, what, what's going to happen if you have a gay guy showering with you? Um, you know, is he going to hit on you? Is he going to is he going to assault you? It's that's going to like ruin the military ethos. It's going to um, create awkward situations with, you know, men. The focus is always on men, I find, not usually on women, which is interesting. 
Um, and so like that's you know that was very much the case around um, service for gay lesbian and bisexual service members. And like I said, the, the term that exists in regulations is transsexualism, right? So the stigma is clear when you think about um, if, if the idea is to frame trans people as being uh, broken in some way or mentally ill in some way. Uh, and, and so, you know, that is very much what the opposition is to, right? It's, it's I think, from a, a swath of the military community or the broader public that has very rigid notions about gender, like this is what who, who men are and who women are, um, and can sort of abide the notion that there are people who are uh, authentically um, uh, of, of a gender that is not the sex that they were assigned at birth, right? And so that's, there, there's a long history, obviously, of, of stigma and discrimination against trans people. And this is, course, I think, yeah. the latest example of that. And so this, in, in terms of um, the U.S. military, you know, it's marveled around the world, um, both in terms of its um, inventiveness, uh, but also its sheer scale and size. Uh, when we talk about a modern military, you often hear conversations around how you recruit uh, for uh, to get more youth, in particular, um, to to gear up for a generation of service. And so, as recruiting is always on the mind um, of service officers and just various uniformed services, um, you hear about numbers. And I think this week uh, there have been a lot of reports floated. I think one including from the Rand Corporation as well as other organizations that kind of vary the ballpark. Um, between maybe it's you know nine thousand uh, trans service members, maybe it's sixteen thousand. Either way, there's a very very significant share um, of LGB and T service members who are really putting their lives um, ahead of uh, anything else for for God and country. So I'm just curious, regardless of where the what the number is, and knowing of course that there are probably many more that maybe aren't necessarily being open about it. Uh, what would this have in, by way of an impact in terms of the ability to recruit for our military, or just like the sheer size, um, if this gets implemented in a way in which these service members have to opt out um, from their continued service to the nation? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, opponents of, of trans military service or, or sort of service by any LGBT folks generally often use, you know, you know, cohesion and readiness as, as arguments. But quite frankly, I think those arguments are better deployed in, in, in support of open service, right? Because ultimately what the military needs are the most qualified people, right? Any, any qualified person. Um, and keep in mind, the qualifications are pretty, uh, you know, they're, they're significant. Like not everyone just gets to sign up and join the military, right? Whether you're enlisted or an officer, um, there are both uh, physical and sort of, you know, uh, mental and intellectual um, standards that you have to meet. And so it's not it's not for everybody. So why would we turn away anyone who is talented um, and who is patriotic and wants to serve our country and, quite frankly, put their, li their lives at risk uh, in many cases. So uh, I, I think, the, to, your, to your point, yes, like, both in terms of recruitment and, importantly, in terms of retention, um, we should always be focused on keeping the best and most qualified and talented people in the military. And when you have regulations or laws that discriminate or stigmatize any group of people or prevent them from um, you know, bringing their whole selves to work or lying about who they are, or preventing them from getting the health care or benefits that they need, um, you're doing a disservice to the military. And there are a lot of trans people who serve and have served for many, many years um, in silence and have not been able to get the kind of, um, you know, whether it's, like I said, health care or support that they need to, to really be 
uh, fully um, functional and uh, you know fully themselves. Yeah, and I I think you raise you mentioned a really good point in terms of unit cohesion and readiness is about qualification, full stop, um, regardless of who you are or what background you're from. Um, given that uh, this administration, both on the campaign trail as well as now um, it, as they govern, talks a lot about what America can be or aspires to be, um, and given that a number of our listeners here are attuned to, you know, what is this sense of being American or what is American enough, when it comes to patriotism and this signal that we're beaming out in the world, um, do you have any qualms or concerns about what this kind of commentary from the commander-in-chief of the world's largest um, and, most, and most dynamic military fleet signals um, to, in terms of that American readiness to our allies um, when we're in joint theaters of war around the world or even our ad adversaries? Is there any kind of signal that this implies that would undercut our safety in any way? Yeah, but absolutely. I mean, every every message that has come from Donald Trump has has undermined, I think, the moral leadership of the United States in the eyes of the global community. Right. It, it's not just about uh, it's not just about, you know, in this in this case of saying um, that and, and really a lot of this of the messaging around Make America Great Again is 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 very specific to a like a nostalgic white male worldview of, of what America should be. It's, it doesn't reflect the, the actual diversity and, and the strength and diversity that, that our country is today. But that's a separate topic entirely. But I think every time they do something like this, it does um, undermine our status in the global community. Um, so it it also sends, I think, a very dangerous signal to you know trans people who aren't in the military, right? But I think whenever you use these sort of false arguments to say these people are not worthy um, or these people are not like you. I mean, I worry about like the trans kid who's sitting at home and reading, um, you know, reading or watching the news or looking at social media and doesn't know what to think in this kind of situation, right? And, and worries that um, if the most, you know, the most powerful office in the country is using its bully pulpit to talk about um, that person not being worthy, I think that's that's a hugely dangerous thing. It, it really worries me about what will happen to um, a lot of kids around the country. And for those kids, you know, yeah. there are glimmers of hope. And I think, um, you know, to, to applaud your efforts and many of your colleagues' efforts, that hope was on display um, when you served uh, the U.S. and, and the, the White House and the Obama administration. Can you, can you walk us through, for anyone worried about what the current state of play looks like, um, how you all actually went about creating a, a step towards progress, because if that progress was made once, um, I think the best thing for anyone listening to this to know who may be worried about what their fate means um, in the society around them is to know that that progress could occur again. Um, maybe that's a little aspirational, but when you have very entrenched interests, when you have words like transsexualism and a general written policies by the U.S. government of authorization and stigmatization. How do you go about actually unwinding um, either Don't Ask, Don't Tell or a step towards open inclusion for, for trans in the military? I, I imagine it, would, it, it took a number of steps, but at a high level, what was the process that looked like? And do you think that process is achievable maybe in a future administration? Yeah, it is. I mean, look, I think any kind of progress has to be closely monitored and safeguarded. And so there will be steps back. But I do think that at the end of the day, ultimately, we're moving as a country in the right direction, um, notwithstanding ridiculous tweets from 
<laughs> the current president. Um, but look, I think the, the you know there was I, I think the most the, the easiest and the, well not the easiest I should say the most important way and the most effective way to make change in a system is to be become a part of the system, right? To like as we used to say in the Obama administration, people are policy, and everywhere that we had a pro LGBT change. Um, over the eight years of the Obama administration, we had someone who was LGBT as part of that process, right? So I think there are there are so many ways to get involved. I mean, certainly there's uh, an important role for activism. Um, there's a role for the private sector, for faith leaders. There, there are a lot of ways in which people who care about social justice um, and civil rights can can make their voices heard. But I would just encourage anyone who is who is uh, as outraged as, as I am and my former colleagues are by these changes to really think about a career in public service, right? right? I mean, maybe now's not the easiest or best time to join the federal government, but there will be a time when um, we will, that sort of intentional focus on having people who look like America serve uh, in the White House and across the administration will be wanted again. And I think that that was the most, um, I mean, I can sort of attest to it in on this issue and on so many other issues, having uh, members from the community who have diverse stories, whose experiences speak to the experiences of, of Americans across the country, uh, having them at, you know, in the halls of power at the table making decisions is the most important thing that we can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that to the extent that service um uh, can, can be an option, we should also recognize that that service can occur at all levels of government, right, and community, not just necessarily in the, the highest rungs of, of the most famous address in the country, but even on, the, sure. on a local organizing level. Um, Absolutely. You had mentioned that, uh, it's highly unfortunate, but you had mentioned the, the, the sort of stain on our military previously um, in light of the recent anniversary of, of Truman's executive order on desegregation um, of just uh, colored peoples being able to serve along non-colored peoples to use a term of the past. Um, what does the, the the current state of play look like in terms of implementation? Um, I, you know, yesterday um, or this week in the in the White House press briefing, any time that um, the press secretary fielded a question about what the 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 status update would be of how this rule or this action by the president would play out she punted to the yeah. department of defense and as we heard um secretary mattis um uh, who leads the pentagon um actually was purportedly on vacation and we're not entirely sure of of how the dialogue between the dod and the white house went down here so as someone that has seen um rollouts of new policy or rollbacks of executive orders. Uh, can you give any insight as to what may have gone down here or what we can expect to occur by way of actually implementing this rule or decree? Yeah, look, I wish I had any kind of insight into how Donald Trump's mind works. Um, I have very little. And, and in fact, I think that was the most striking thing about this this tweet, right, is it didn't make any sense. You don't announce a change in policy by randomly just tweeting it out and saying, I mean, there were there were huge policy problems with it. There are litigation problems with it, right? It's just like calling for lawsuits galore. And so it, it didn't make a lot of sense. And there was some reporting yesterday about perhaps what he might have been thinking or, or not thinking. Um, it's it's really hard to say when you have a group of people with, that have such little experience with the government and quite frankly have so much disdain for government that it's it's perhaps not surprising, although I find myself continually shocked by it. The, the sort of lack of, of foresight and planning around this kind of stuff. So the, the one bit of good news is that um, 
you know, literally just an hour ago, the Joint Chiefs, um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs basically said that there there will be no modifications to the current implementation of open service for trans people. And in fact, very pointedly, I think, said we will continue to treat all of our personnel with respect. So essentially saying, great, like, got it. There's this random tweet out there. But until we have very clear direction from the president um, and concurrence from the Secretary of Defense. We're not we're not going to do anything differently, which I think is speaks to uh, the the very practical mindset of of military leadership and commanders, which is you you've got you know whether it's hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people who are serving currently who have been told that they can come out and be who they are. Um, there's no like feasible way to just kick them out, right? Like, how would you even go about doing that? Um, so I think to their credit, and we'll see if this sticks, uh, at least the military leadership is saying, um, you know, uh, thanks, but no thanks for now. And we'll see what happens um, moving forward. I'm hopeful that given all the backlash that the, the president's tweet got yesterday, including importantly from several Republican senators uh, and uh, representatives um, that, that maybe they'll just they'll think twice about it. Um, I mean, this will not be the first time that a presidential decree by tweet has been rolled back by the Trump administration. So hopefully, it's just another example of of the kind of chaos that we've seen um, and not an actual change policy. Yeah, and and I, I think that that glimmer of hope um, couldn't be more. Uh, uh, animated by what you mentioned earlier, which is raising your voice and getting involved, you know, whether you're tweeting about it or whether you're out there marching about it um, or even using the, the, the small soapbox that you might have at your current place of work to raise awareness in your own communities. Um, that's the only way that we're going to get the kind of attention that, that clearly um, the, the clear-eyed military brass yesterday um, was cognizant of, um, both in terms of backlash but also implementation. And hopefully that's the kind of progress that we'll, we'll continue to see as the country's chorus echoes on this. Um, well, we'll end with that glimmer of hope. Gautam Raghavan, thank you for your service. Um, thanks for taking the time today. And uh, we'll hopefully chat with you. Hopefully we won't have a need to chat with you again soon. But um, if you'll be back, <laughs> we'd love to have you. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Gavin. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2017. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Edited by Mark Rako. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM. And connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.